Well, passages like First and Second Timothy, First Timothy four, Second Timothy two, Second Timothy four as well, uh, speak of uh, the priority that it is for a pastor to faithfully and biblically teach and preach uh, the Word of God, and in doing so, uh, we get to know God. We don't know God uh, savingly through uh, subjective inclinations through our thoughts, through looking at nature. We know God savingly through His Word. Uh, And in doing so, through the hearing and the study of His Word, we get conformed to the will of God. And one of the major things that happens uh, as we sit under the biblical preaching of the Word is that we get equipped in life. And one of the foremost things we need equipping for and we get equipped for in the preaching of the Word is for suffering. It's for suffering. You can't get just about three chapters into the Bible without hearing and, and seeing that things in this life are going to be rough. Uh, and if you say, well, I'm, I haven't encountered that so far, just live long enough, and I promise you, you will. Uh, in preaching the Word, a pastor's responsibility is, in that sense, uh, to prepare you for suffering. Uh, whether you're a Christian, a Satanist, an atheist, anything in between, Um, You have a great God who is the God of the Bible and He loves you and He desires to reveal Himself to you from His Word. And you can be equipped for the inevitable suffering, the only answers for suffering that are meaningful, that are objective, that are absolute and true and helpful and that are eternal are those from the Word of God. God's Word equips us for suffering. This is uh, one of the great reasons uh, why we need to gather, gather regularly, gather weekly, and schedule schedule our lives and submit our lives uh, to allow God to care for us in that way that we would sit under uh, the weekly preaching of the Word and the worship of God through His Word, that we would be equipped for suffering. And the book of Ruth is extremely valuable uh, for, pre- for preparing us for suffering. If you're not here last week, be sure to listen Uh, to the introduction of the book as we studied verses 1 through 5. The introduction is critical, some important matters that we covered to correctly understand and prepare ourselves for this wonderful, often neglected Old Testament book. We read the entirety of the book last week as we remarked uh, in some of the festivals, the ancient festivals in Old Testament times. It was read, uh, the entire book, and the worship of, uh, of God among His people. We won't do that this week, but we will read uh, chapter 1 as Lord willing. We'll finish studying chapter 1, uh, the unit therein this evening in our study. So follow along as I read. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Ruth 1, verse 1. Follow along as I read the inerrant word of God. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So this sets the scene for the book of Ruth. Great suffering, disobedience on the part of God's covenant people and leaving the land and going to a pagan nation. 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard that in the land of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people in giving them food. Of course, capital uh, L-O-R-D translates the Hebrew word for God. Yahweh is the covenant name for his Old Testament people. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest each in the house of of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return my daughters. Go for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since Yahweh has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning, the barley harvest. We spent extensive time last week on the background of the book. We won't repeat ourselves here, but needless to say, this book is... Uh, features much suffering. The opening scene here is is telling. Uh, the time of the book, of course, verse 1 of chapter 1, is the days of the judges. So the events in Ruth, a time span of about 11-ish years, fall sometime later during the time of Judges, which, is, of, of course, is recorded in which book? The book of Judges. That was about a 300-year Time span of unprecedented immorality, gross immorality among the people of God and disobedience among the people of God where there's that phrase often in the book of Judges in chapter 17 and the conclusion of the book. Look there back at Judges 21 verse 25. Judges 21, 25, just turn, just turn right back. It's the book immediately before a phrase that just captures the, 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 the times in which the book of Ruth occurs in those days there was no king in Israel judges 21:25 everyone did what was right in, in in his own eyes so incredibly this is a time in which people thought that that absolute truth and that absolute right and wrong was was actually relative 
the most irrational, illogical worldview that anyone could ever have. And this is a time in which Ruth occurs. And so the fact that anything good happens in Ruth is pretty amazing. The book overall we covered, it's, it's about God working. Ruth is about God working through human suffering to bring about His good, redeeming plan. The book is not about friendship. The book is not about uh, women in a, a, a patriarchal society rising above oppression. It's not about that at all. It's about God working in human suffering for His glory to show His faithfulness to His unfaithful people and bring about the messianic line, the line of David, the line which from which Christ would come to bring a Savior into the world. Hence, the most important part of the book, which we read last week, the genealogy in chapter 4. Isn't that interesting? With genealogies, we typically blow by those. That is a critical, the most important part of the book, of the book of Ruth, which we'll get to later. Ruth shows that God is furthering His promise to Abraham, which He gave about 2000 BC. His promise that through you, Abraham, even though you're a Gentile, I'm going to start this Jewish nation, bring many people, and bring blessing to all people. Of course, that would be Christ. And God is being faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. Here we are about 900 years after that promise to Abraham. Of course, God, the true God, being faithful. So major tragedy happening here. Uh, in about 10 years' time, as mentioned, as, as we read there in verse 4, uh, Bethlehem enters into... A famine. Because of God's punishment on, on uh, the Jewish people for their unfaithfulness to him, we'll talk about that in a minute, economic agricultural devastation uh, occurs. Naomi's husband says, well, let's, let's in, in effect, says, let's forsake God and go into a pagan na- nation, which they were commanded not to do. Her, her husband dies. Her two Israelite sons uh, again disobey, take pagan wives, which they were not supposed to do, not for ethnic reasons, but theological, spiritual, they're barren, and nothing could be worse for an Israelite at the time. The land into which they go for refuge, Moab ends up consuming them and taking their lives. And the text is eerily silent, chapter 1 is, as far as the details of Naomi's tragedy, in the sense of, is this the Lord's judgment? Of course, we studied last week, the Old Testament reader would Understand it was. Now the events slow way down in verses 6 through 22 as it becomes clear that Naomi, in a sense, is the main human character of the book. Last week we saw in verses 1, 1 through 5, in verses 1 through 5, that though God never abandons his people, sin can have incredible consequences. This week, verse 6 through 22, just sort of a big picture, what are we seeing? We'll put it up here on the overhead. It's also in your in your uh, in your bulletin there, just sort of a flyover. In the midst of suffering, God is using His imperfect people to build His perfect kingdom while remaining near to them, while remaining faithful to them. In the midst of suffering, God is using His imperfect people to build His perfect kingdom while remaining near to them. This is about God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant and to His people in suffering. And just some uh, some landmarks, as we'll see as we go throughout the text. Our outline again is this. It's five more, five more uh, reminders for tough times. Saw five last week, five more. This continues to be about God's faithfulness in suffering. 
Number one is this. Number one, God will never abandon His people in their suffering. God will never abandon His people in their suffering. Whether it's self-inflicted suffering, as in a sense it was tragically for this family, or it's not, or it's partially self-inflicted and partially something else, whatever it is, God will never abandon His people in suffering. We see this in verse 6 through 7. Look at verse 6. Let's get right into the text here. Then she arose... The, the, the widow Naomi with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab for she'd heard in the land of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people in giving them food. Now, remember, Deuteronomy 28 is critical to correctly understanding the book of Ruth, the whole Testament, the whole Bible for that matter. Deuteronomy, probably one of the most more important books in the entire Bible to rightly understand Old and New Testament. Um, of course, the writer of Ruth assumes you understand the previous seven books, which is a very reasonable assumption. Deuteronomy 28, a reminder of what we saw last week. This is the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant God makes with His people after He redeems them. God says, look, now it shall be. Since, since they are God's people, great responsibility comes with that. There is always great responsibility that comes with great grace. And the same is true today. God says, now it shall be. If you diligently... Diligently obey Yahweh your God. Being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today. Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Notice the if there. Obeying His commands. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. If you obey Yahweh your God, Yahweh will establish you as a holy people to Himself as He swore to you if you keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and walk in His ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you're called by the name of Yahweh and they'll be afraid of you. Next slide there. Yahweh will make you abound in prosperity and the offspring of your body. It's a very tangible uh, prosperity promises here. Uh, Your kids will do well. The produce of your ground. The economy will be well. Verse 12, Yahweh will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens to give rain uh, to your land in the season and to to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend many nations, but you shall not borrow. And on and on, many, many more blessings contingent upon their obedience as God's people. However, there were also many curses, many curses if they were uh, to disobey. But but it shall come about if you do not obey Yahweh your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And the rest of Deuteronomy 28, lots of very graphic uh, disturbing things that will happen. For example, verse 23, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, the earth which is under you iron, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust from heaven. It shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So, and again, in these agrarian societies, this is about one, uh, 1500 BC when this is given. The whole economy, the livelihood, the village, the nation depended upon rain and sun and the crops. So some, some, some critical uh, contingencies given here. Uh, There's more in Deuteronomy 28, but this is behind what is happening in the book of Ruth. Critical to understand this. So this covenant is given in 1500 BC. Fast forward to the time of Judges, where there's rank indifference, total apathy against God, a, a profession of faith, but no zeal to surrender to him, to love him, to obey him, to take his word seriously. So God brings a this famine into the land of Bethlehem, and that was that's ironic, of course, because Bethlehem means what in Hebrew? House of 
bread. So that was a reminder. The famine is not just a lack of rain. It's a lack of zeal for God in, in, in different hearts. So God is staying faithful to his word in Deuteronomy 28. Elimelech, uh, the leader of this family, of this Israelite family, disobeys. They were to stay in the land. They leave the land. Very pragmatic. Uh, remember, he's, Elimelech is sort of thinking, yeah, you know, I understand that the Bible says this, but i, I got to think practically. I, I, it's just too hard with the kids and with the job and with all these problems. And I, I, I understand that that would be ideal, but i got to think realistically. And instead of trusting the Lord, he trusts his own reasoning and leaves the land. And does, that doesn't work out very well for him. He dies, not incidentally. His two sons die, not incidentally, either. And so Naomi is heading back to Israel, a major shift in the story. She's been there about 10 years, lived through seasons of unfaithfulness to God and her family, loses her husband. The, 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 the Moabite widows are childless, which again was, a, which was God's judgment, as we saw in Deuteronomy 28. But sadly, that tragedy didn't move her to say, you know what? We've, we've been unfaithful to God. We should return. Uh, we've brought a bit of this tragedy upon ourselves. Time to return. Sadly, it seems that tragedy didn't bring repentance. It's, it's hearing that there is bread now in Bethlehem. This reminds us of, of something important here. That hitting a low in life is not enough always to save a person. She is at an incredible low. And sometimes we'll say, well, that person just has to hit rock bottom and, and then they'll, they'll do what makes sense and turn back to the Lord. Not always. Because we're not saved by our circumstances. But we're saved by a sovereign act of God's sovereign grace upon our hearts and softening our stubborn and rebellious will whereby we surrender ourselves and do the only rational thing and receive His love and repentance, whether a high or a low. We wouldn't pretend that Naomi's circumstances are easy, but this the obedient decision to leave Moab and return to Israel apparently did not come do, due to a turning of heart, but the end of a famine. She heard, of, she heard that Yahweh had brought food, had brought bread, the Hebrew word there, is bread. So Bethlehem apparently is living back up to its name now, the house of bread. The end of that famine is not merely the consequence, of course, of consequence of like the end of a 10-year drought. God did this. Look at look back at verse 6 there. In Moab they heard Yahweh had visited his people and giving them bread. Notice the kindness of God in the midst of suffering. This doesn't mean that a bread truck opened. Several, several evidences of God's kindness here. First, though Naomi is willingly and disobediently in a pagan land, she still hears the good news. The good news still makes it to her ears, though she's very far away. That's, that's God's grace to her. That's God's kindness. God's kindness is peppered all over this thing here. Think about it. Ten years she's been there, perhaps she thought, well, God has either forsaken me or forgotten me. Uh, my husband brought me into this disobedience. Maybe she's thinking, and he's gone, my sons are gone, and God has left me because I've disobeyed too much. I'm done. I've, I, I've sinned my way out of, I've sinned my way out from under God's care and love. That could be a temptation. Maybe you've been tempted, 
tempted by such thoughts. But notice, God had visited his people. Do you see that in the text? Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, he visited. The word, the word in Hebrew means it communicates his intentional care. His intentional coming upon them to rescue helpless, disobedient rebels when they weren't going to rescue themselves. He visited his people. They left God. Again, read Judges. Read the first five verses. They left God, but God had not left them for a moment. He allowed them to experience the consequences of their indifference and their hard hearts with a famine and such. He had to. He's good. He has to be faithful to his word and to the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. But their suffering would not be the final word and neither will yours. He visited his people. And notice that it says he visited his. Notice possessive. His people. Possessive pronoun there is critical. They are still His people. And again, we are in the days of judges. So that word His is remarkable. A time of greatest indifference, greatest hardness of heart. Not for a few years, but a few centuries. Even so, God still, look there, God still says in verse 6, they are His people meaning they belong to Him. They are cared for by Him. They're overseen by Him. They're His precious uh, treasure in His possession. Not because they're thinking and living preciously or like His treasures. Not because their lives are so angelic that God just can't help Himself from heaven is just gushing over them and gushing over them. No, they're, they're wicked. They, like all of God's people, have only earned wrath and judgment What is motivating God then? After all this disobedience, after leaving the land, leaving God's people, leaving corporate worship, they haven't participated in corporate worship for 10 years. Why would God not allow them to go into eternal condemnation? This is why. Deuteronomy 7, this is why. Because God decided to love them as He does with all people, even in the New Covenant. Deuteronomy 7, again, a critical verse for understanding the Bible. Speaking to Israel, Yahweh did not set his love on you, nor to you. This answers the question. I mean, we read of Israel's wickedness all throughout the Old Testament. Why would he still love them? Yahweh did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because, because you are more in number than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, Abraham, etc., Yahweh brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God, God says, you're like the least impressive people. Don't think you're the most impressive. You're the least impressive. Even so, God decided to elect you and predestine you. That's how it always has to be with God's people, lest grace could ever be anything else but grace. That's what grace means. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, it comes into the New Testament. Furthermore, a little bit later in Deuteronomy 9, and he just God's wording here is, is just goes straight to the point. God says, look, do not say in your heart, when Yahweh your God has driven them out before you, again, all the people he was going to purge from the land of Israel, don't, don't say, oh, because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to, to possess the land. 
But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is dispossessing them before you. It is not, in case you didn't hear it, notice how many times God repeats himself to make sure they understand that grace is always electing, persevering, eternal grace. Verse 5, it's not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. It's not because God would look down the, 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 the sands of time and see that you would choose him. It's not because God would be moved by some future morality of yours. In other words, this is what verse 5 is saying, not that at all. But it is because of the wickedness of the nations that Yahweh your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath or the promise which Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one more time, in case you didn't get it, guys, verse 6, he says, No, that it is not because of your righteousness, your morality, anything good in you, anything that you would ever do or think or decide, in other words, that Yahweh your God is giving you this good land to possess. And it says, for you are a stubborn people. He says at the end there. Ouch. He says, for you're a stubborn people. Is there anything in there that, that communicates the idea that God deciding to save someone depends on them? No, it's in spite of them. You're a stubborn people. Don't say it's because of your uprightness. It's because God is a God of grace. This is what grace means. God makes the sovereign choice and He'll no more change His sovereign choice on His electing people than He'll start not being God. And you need to know that in your suffering. And you need to know that in your hardship. That God will not abandon you and not leave you to the devils, though they will, they will bite at you and tempt you, and do great damage. Much of which you won't fully understand like Job until you die and read the book about you, proverbially speaking. When God chooses a people, God will never unchoose a people because God will never ungod himself. It is all grace. This is what grace means. God decides to select an unworthy and even an unwilling people for himself So that grace is all of grace. Romans chapter 4 teaches, Romans chapter 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, 29 and 30, etc. This is what grace means. God chooses to be faithful to those who are not so much all the time. People like me and you. For that reason then, back to Ruth 1.6, it says that Yahweh had visited His people. God is a people now and God is a God had a people then, has a people now. The people this side of the church, this side of the cross, excuse me, is called the church. First Peter two nine, we're a chosen race, he says. When God thinks of his people today, be sure you are included in those people. You'll remember from Matthew nineteen at the end there, Jesus says, Well it's actually impossible to be saved. Meaning you can't do anything. With man, it's impossible. But with God, it is possible. Well, then how do I get included in on the people of God? You can always ask. And Jesus says, those who come to me, I won't turn anyone away. He's a good, sovereign, merciful, forgiving God. Well, there's more mercy all over this verse. 
Verse 6 again. The fact that God brought bread back to the house of bread means that the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28 are coming to a close for a moment. God moved to end the famine, to make it rain, some soft hearts. It's all God. And so verse 7 then, So she departed from the place where she was, her two daughters-in-law. They went on their way to return to the land of Judah. This This is significant. Naomi goes from Moab. The widows of her deceased sons are joining her, apparently, initially setting out. And we have sort of a reversal here. In earlier in chapters one and verse one through five, we have the people of Israel defecting from their nation and God to go into Moab. Now we have some people from Moab defend, defecting from their people and their God, the false God, Chemosh, of course, who was involved in child sacrifice and these things. In a day, in a day and a time and a, a place which was very unfriendly to widows, the fact that they would be willing to do this is remarkable. It speaks to Naomi's love for them, that they would be willing to do that. Naomi's love, despite being in suffering and a measure of disobedience, her love for them was strong. So strong that it was worth it for Orpah and Ruth to leave their birth families, their land, to go to a hostile land. It speaks to perhaps some of the godliness that Naomi displayed towards them despite some of the disobedience. Remember, Naomi had followed her husband. It said there in verse 2, Elimelech, he, he led them. It implies that he led them there. And if that's the case, it's possible that she followed a disobedient husband and strived to live godly in less than ideal circumstances a word for us. Sometimes we'll find ourselves in less than ideal circumstances through no fault of our own. Sometimes wives, due to the disobedience of us husbands, you'll find yourself in less than ideal circumstances. You can find your example in Naomi. Continue to shine and be salt and light in such times. Well, number two. Number two. Bitterness is a temptation for all of us. Especially, we could add there, especially in suffering, verses 8 to 13. Bitterness, hardness of heart, resentment, a calloused heart. It's a temptation for all of us. And we could add there, especially in suffering. If you've gone through some major trial, it's a temptation. Not excusable, but understandable. Look at verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. And may Yahweh grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, they lifted their voices and wept. So as Naomi and the two young widows march west from Moab towards Bethlehem, it seems that Naomi has a change of plans. Maybe I'm not so sure if they should go with me. Probably reality sets in. Ah, Two young widows leaving their nation, traveling. It was about 75 miles, which in that day was a long, long way through through the desert and the wilderness. Two young widows surviving away from their village, away from the familiarity, away from Moabite culture, in a hostile culture, away from their family. That's not going to work out well for them. Perhaps she was thinking something like that. 
You're going to be spared any more tragedy and suffering. Perhaps she's thinking you need to go back and find yourself some new husbands, ladies. She invokes God's blessing on them. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have with me, with the dead. Again, amazing. Bond here between them. Verse 9, end of verse 9, she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her, no, but we'll surely return with you to your people. Again, a very unusual bond. And this is sort of a brief shining moment in a period of great darkness between two very hostile cultures, Moabite and Israelite culture. Shows what the grace of God can do. Look at verse 11. But Naomi said, return my daughters. She says to him, go return about four times. Return my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Again, you see that in many senses in these days, whether it's good or bad, that the livelihood of, of ladies often depended on a husband, a living one, of course. Then she says, verse 12, return my daughters, go. For I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from, from marrying? No, my daughter, she says, for it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. So the words finally come out of her heart, right? She has suffered much. And it's been hard. Whether it was her husband's fault, a little bit of both, some mixtures, uh, everything in between, it's been hard. The Hebrew word here that's translated harder in the NASB, it's the word for bitter. The idea is something like this. It could be translated, I'm too, I am much too bitter for you, she says. Not only am I unable to give you more husbands physically, but spiritually I am too bitter. It is best for you to just leave me. Let's skip down to verse 19 real quick. Verse 19, look there. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city is stirred. Is this Naomi? She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty, or Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since Yahweh's witness against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Ten years she's been gone. First interaction with these people. And there's no like, hey, great to see you. You know, we've missed you so much. It's just, why are you calling me Naomi? Uh, That's your name, isn't it? But at this point, she cannot be, she cannot bear to be called Naomi because in Hebrew, Naomi, it has the idea of like my delight, delightful. Don't call me delight anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She is in the gall of bitterness. At least she admits it. We can't excuse her sin, but it is understandable. Perhaps she's bitter at her husband for leading her into Moab with consequent suffering. She's bitter at God, of course, because she believes that she believes the truth, though. Notice that here. God is sovereign over suffering. She knows that. Ecclesiastes 7.14, Lamentations 3, Habakkuk 3, many other. She knows the curses of Deuteronomy 28. 
This is no accident. Bitterness, a word on bitterness. With every hardship and hurt we encounter, there's the potential to wake the bitterness monster. And he is a very light sleeper. Don't think you're above bitterness, friend. This this monster can attack even the strongest believers. Even a small scuffle in life, it's enough to arouse him. Bitterness is hurt incurred from either real or perceived hardship or offense, gone unchecked, allowed to continue by failure to apply biblical principles in thinking to the hurt, resulting in hatred and resentment, whether expressed or not, whether a happy face or a frown. Bitterness is the quick, it's the quick fix for the flesh, isn't it? Dealing biblically with hurt comes, becomes too hard. And so like a spiritual pusher, bitterness offers a quick relief, but it destroys in the long run. Beware. Beware of thinking, oh, I'm not bitter, I'm just struggling a little bit. Mm, that usually means you're bitter. Bitter has a wide spectrum. All the way from flagrant murder to just a quiet stewing and you're able to put on a happy face. Don't underestimate its power. It's amazing how easily it can slither into our hearts. Are you continuing to dwell on a person or incident in an unfavorable way? Have you brought up the person or incident perhaps to use it against them? Have you brought up the person or the, inc- the the person to others who don't really need to know the details? Have you quietly enjoyed how others take your side in the matter against another? Bitterness. You're not above it. Neither am I. Are you considering riding off this person? Do you make little like distance moves? Tangible distance moves. Maybe just less encouragement. Maybe less thankfulness towards them. Or maybe something more. Bitterness, whether great or small, is in fact great wickedness and sin. There's another word for it. It's called hatred, which Jesus in Matthew 5, 22 uh, down to 26 calls murder. He says, you hate someone in your heart, you're as guilty as murder. He says, in fact, you're as guilty, you're guilty enough to go to hell. To fight bitterness, we've got to marinate our minds in the Word of God. Fight for biblical thinking. It's largely a battle of the heart, isn't it? Psalm 119, 165. Those who love your law, O Lord, will have great peace and nothing will cause them to stumble. We have to fight in bitterness, fight for an accurate high view of God. Personal personal bitterness has much less to do with a person and much more to do with you and God. At least Naomi expresses that. Yahweh has dealt with me in a bitter way. She's still clinging to her faith, though. We'll get to that in a second. 
fight for that high view of God. Don't fight for like, like one side of, of like gushy God. Like I'm just going to look up all the verses where God says he's crazy about me, but I'm not going to look up the other verses of God about he's holy and how he's righteous and how bitterness is sin. I'm not going to look that up. Fight for a comprehensive, holistic, accurate view of God. He loves you. Also, refuse to separate yourself from the body of Christ during temptations with bitterness. Refuse to separate yourself from people. Easier. It's easier that way. Just like eating a, a ball of morphine is much easier. It's a much easier way to deal with your sickness than it is to go get an examination and surgery or whatever. Satan wants to divide and conquer. Restrain the desire to air hurt feelings and bitterness. Restrain the desire to air hurt feelings. Oh, it feels so good, doesn't it? Hurt feelings is the golden calf of our day. It's a whole other sermon. In most situations, sharing how we feel can mask a desire to continue boiling in resentment. Feels so good. It feels so good, especially when others come to partake in our pity pot. Pit, our, ah, sorry. Our pity party. They're hypnotized by it. They take our side. Why? Because everyone favors the underdog. Oh, you've been hurt so bad. Ah, that's like 20% of the story sometimes. It's manipulative. Take our hurt to Jesus. Hebrews four fourteen to 16. Take your hurt to Jesus, but beware. He's not a, he's not a receptacle for our spiritual vomit. He's not a cosmic psychologist that just wants to hear us spew all our hurt feelings and sin. He gives us grace. Grace doesn't mean continue to permit us to sin, but strength to trust His goodness to repent of sin. Look to Christ's example. If anyone, if, if anyone faced understandable Temptation to bitterness, it's him. No one in history has ever been so unjustly bombarded with hardship than Christ was in his, in his humanity. Every day, he's the judge. Every sin of the seven billion people on earth every second is against him. Yet he remains a sweet, sovereign, gracious Savior. He never sinned for one second in bitterness. Died for us. Number three. Sincere saving faith doesn't always have to be cheerful for it to be genuine. Saving faith doesn't always have to be cheerful for it to be genuine. Cheerful or giddy or whatever. Doesn't have to be giddy for it to be genuine. To be sure, again, this is not to say that we can give ourselves a pass for bitterness. But considering the suffering that Naomi has experienced, it is remarkable that she has not abandoned God and apostatized from the faith. 
Again, some might read Naomi's words and say, Man, what's her deal? Debbie Downer, I mean, come on. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Come on, Naomi. I'm not going to your church, Naomi. People aren't happy there. Wickedness. Notice to whom she is attributing her suffering. End of verse 13. The hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. End of verse 20. Yahweh, the Almighty, excuse me, it says, Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went out full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Yahweh has witnessed against me. Oftentimes in the midst of suffering, it, it can seem like God is working against you. Do you see that there? He's against me. He's witnessed against me. He's brought me back empty. Oh, how we need this in our day. A day that worships happiness instead of the God of the Bible. Do you worship happiness instead of the God of the Bible like I have at times? Naomi is thinking, is, is he like up in heaven? I mean, chess playing to make me more miserable? Naomi doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know about chapter 4 or chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. Just like Job didn't know. He didn't know the inner workings of God, what was happening in chapter 1 and 2. And neither do you and I in our respective struggles all the time. We don't always know what's happening. Faith. We shouldn't be overly critical of Naomi here. She's in the gall of bitterness. But, but, she clings to the Lord. She still is, Yahweh has done this. Yahweh has done this. Three times she mentions it. At least she's not committing apostasy, abandoning, abandoning the faith and saying, well, I'm just going to go to Chemosh or the Moab, or the Moab religion or whatever else. She's still holding on because God is holding on to her because of Deuteronomy 7. And, and, and Genesis 12. It's possible for strong and sincere faith and depression to be bound up in the same soul. Saving faith and deep discouragement and sorrow are sometimes found in the same person. And in our age, we're in an unprecedentedly shallow and Discouraging time in Christianity in our nation. We worship happy. We have this golden calf in America, in Christian America, like among the professing Christians, called emotional high. At least like drug addicts are honest. They just say, I just need to like get a buzz. In Christianity, we call it God or the fruit of the Spirit. You don't worship that. You worship your feelings. Naomi at least is honest. Seems like he's against me, but I'm still clinging to him. Listen to the testimony of godly men from Scripture. The sons of Korah, faithful men of God in the Old Testament. They say, just listen, Psalm 42, verse 6, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. These guys were not spiritual lightweights either. Psalm 6, 6, David says, I'm weary with sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. The Apostle Paul, 
regarding unregenerate Jews. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And of, Jesus, of course, Jesus, Isaiah 53, 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Luke 19, 41 says, when he approached the city, he looks over the, the decadence and the disobedience of Jerusalem and says he wept over it. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who are always giddy. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. May God help our nation. So shallow these days. Sincere saving faith does not always have to be cheerful for it to be genuine or strong and mature. In his helpful book, Depression and Stubborn Darkness, Ed Welch writes this, quote, It is a myth that faith is always smiling. The truth is that faith often feels like the very ordinary process of dragging one foot in front of the other because we're conscious of God. In fact, if we're constantly giddy, it could be very bad. It could mean we're getting our idols all the time. It could mean we're not saved. It could mean we're spiritually blind to reality, living in a delusion. It could mean, it could mean we're numbing the real normal sorrows of life with an idol. I'm, I'm very concerned about professing Christians who always sort of have a Peter Pan type of giddiness about them and who insist that others need to have likewise. It very well could be, in fact, that they are a Peter Pan. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Yes. Amen. But, but the joy there spoken of in Galatians 5 is much more complex and sophisticated than a giddy grin. It's an inward demeanor that is regenerate by the grace of God and savingly believes and rests in the truth that God is sovereign, that the God of the Bible is reigning over all things. Christ reigns. Christ is resurrected. He's bringing all things to the very good end of heaven. I'm trusting in Him. Maybe, by, maybe holding on by a thread at sometimes. We need to go deeper in God. Sincere saving faith doesn't always have to be cheerful for it to be genuine. Number four. In the midst of suffering, God is still building His kingdom. Verse 14 to 18. In the midst of suffering, God is still building His kingdom. Look at verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15, then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Not the best counsel, Naomi. She's struggling. Orpah went back to Chemosh. Go with her. There's a sense in which Naomi is more pragmatic than wise here. Just go back. Just go get a husband. It'll be easier. Go back to Moab. It's too hard. Life is too hard. Look at verse 16. Ruth, so Orpah goes back. Verse 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Wow. Four commands from Naomi. At least to to return, Ruth will not have it. Why? Because she's just a better friend than Orpah? No, look at the end of verse 16. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. 
Wow. You've probably heard this verse read at weddings with good intention. But notice the meaning of them. Ruth has pledged loyal surrender and submission to the God of the Bible, to Naomi's God, who, of course, is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping gracious God. And this is no flippant youth camp commitment because of an emotional high. These are the very words before it was written of Luke 9.23 where Jesus says, if you want to be saved, you have to, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Ruth commits to abandon her people. Again, the journey from Moab to Judah, about 75 miles. To get there, you had to descend about 4,500 feet into rugged, the Jordan terrain, and then ascend another 3,500 feet back into Bethlehem. And that's like a four-day journey. When have, you, when, when have you spent four days traveling anywhere in the world recently? And these young widows, the lowest in, in the social hierarchy, the least, widows are the least likely to survive. Leaving her God, Kemosh, this is no small spiritual step, leaving her, 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 her family abandons it all because of the kindness and the forgiveness of the true God of the Bible. This is massive faith. This is saving faith. Ruth forsakes all human securities of the day because that's what saving faith is. I'm going to let go of things I can see, touch, taste, feel, smell, and come under Yahweh in faith. I don't know where I'm going. She's she's never been there. She's never even been to a worship service. Just imperfect Naomi witnessing to her imperfectly. And this is what saving faith, this is how saving faith often happens. Your people or my people. Recall in the Old Testament, Uniting with the people was to unite with God. In verse 17, look at this. She, I mean, she, she invokes a curse on herself. Where you die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. And, and she even calls on Yahweh, her new God, to, to bring curse upon her. Thus may Yahweh do to me and worse, if anything, but death departs, uh, death parts you and me. Verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is huge. Because in ancient times, the place where a person wanted to be buried was the place the most was most significant to them. The land of Israel was central to worshiping God. He's all in. This isn't the story of rock-solid, genuine friendship here. Not at all. But a rock-solid God giving a very unlikely Gentile rock-solid saving faith. She can't help it. This is what happens. This is what saving faith looks like. And by the way, your people will become my people. She knows something here. Whenever a person savingly unites to the true God, they will sincerely unite with the true people of God. Always. If a professing believer will not unite with the true people of God, they have not yet united with the true God. God uses imperfect Naomi to bring about salvation. This Moabite has become a believer. Fifth and last, quickly. Suffering is never the end of the matter for those who put faith in God. It may seem like it's going on forever. 10, 11 years here for Naomi. 
Is this, is this ever going to end? Is this, is this suffering and this season of hardship ever going to end? It's never the end of the matter for those who would simply put faith in God. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabites. And so often you've noticed in chapter 1, the Moabite, the Moabites, from the land of Moab. They want us to see how incredible this is, this, these two hostile nations. Ruth, the widow of the Moabite, is doing what none of God's people should have been doing. And notice, they came to uh, Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Why would you put that verse in there, God? What do we care about the time of the harvest? That's just incidental. It's not incidental. There's a harvest in the land of bread, meaning God has not abandoned them. Suffering is not the end of the matter for God's people. There's going to be a barley harvest, and there's three more chapters. I wonder what, might, what significance might this barley harvest have for the rest of the book and for you to bring in the Messiah. It's not the end of the matter for Naomi, nor is it the end of the matter for Ruth and her suffering as well, having lost her husband childless. Now, this point is only true for those who put faith in God. If you will not put faith in God, tragically, we must love you enough to say that suffering is the end of the matter. And it's the eternal end of the matter. This absolute fact. But if you, like Ruth, verse 16 there, will fall on God, the merciful God, the Lord Jesus Christ, Becoming your God, uniting with his people, certainly there is a future and a hope for you. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and your great love shown in the midst of suffering. By your grace, may we cling to you and unite with you in our suffering that is inevitable. Cause us to love and worship you, for you are so worthy. Christ's name we pray. Amen.